Good morning, sports fans. You guys doing okay? All right. Um, I hope you guys are sensing the Holy Spirit. I think He's present here. I think He's moving. And, gentlemen, when He moves, He moves not to draw attention uh, to Himself, but to attention to the Lord Jesus. And so, my prayer for us is that that's exactly what would happen. That Christ would be magnified in your eyes and in your heart as we talk about the things we're going to talk about. Now, the title of this talk is The End of Christendom. The title I stole from a guy by the name of Malcolm Muggeridge. Muggeridge was a Brit. He's a journalist and a thinker. And he gave a lecture to the Pascal Society in 1980 the title of which was The End of Christendom. This idea of Christendom dying has been around for a while. Now, 1980 was a long time ago. And things have not gotten better since 1980. But I want to talk about that. But before I do, Observe with me, gentlemen, that the Bible is the most dynamic book that's ever been written. It's dynamic in at least two important ways. The one is, it has the power to change people. And many of you have experienced that power. We all come to Jesus as rats, as bums. And he begins to change, work in our lives, and it's so slow. But gentlemen, the only power to change the soul of a man is found in Jesus Christ, and the Bible is about him. So that's the most important way in which the Bible is dynamic. But it's dynamic in a second way, and that is There is a movement in the Bible across time and history. It is a movement of ideas. And the ideas are about redemption. Let me me explain to you what I mean by that. If, If you start with the book of Genesis and say you are given only the first three chapters of Genesis, what you find are the creation of God And he creates two people. He puts them in a garden. They are mortal. They are naked. And they are innocent until they eat of the fruit. And then they fall. So that's the first three chapters of Genesis. And let's say that's all you have, except you also have the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And what you find in Revelation is not two people, but myriads of people, uncountable numbers, who are fully clothed, 
who are completely righteous, who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and who have communion with God face to face, and they live in this great city. Now, if that's all you had, you ask yourself, how could that happen? What happened? That's what everything between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20 is about. How that happened. Now, how that happened, of course, is Jesus Christ. The Bible is about him. And everything in redemption history is about Christ. Everything from Genesis to Malachi points to Jesus. And everything from Matthew to Revelation talks about the work that he did on our behalf. Now, the other thing that's important to understand about all of this <clears throat> is that it is God and God alone who is directing all of human history. All of human history. Hebrews 4.3 says, His works, speaking of God, His works were finished before the foundation of the world. All you and I are doing, is, it's like living in, in a movie that's already been made. All the outcomes are known. We're just simply passing through time and history and events that God created. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is your mission as a follower of Jesus, to find those works that God did for you. Think about that. He prepared works for each guy in this room who knows Christ. That gives life purpose. Now, gentlemen, that means that all of history is purposeful. Not only so, God is moral and God is lawful. And everything is moving, driven by those things. Now, as Winston pointed out, we do not see justice this side of the grave. But on the other side of the grave, the rights will be wronged. I mean, the wrongs will be righted. And every man will get is just due. Now, there's two camps, the saved and the unsaved, but within whichever bucket you're in, God will give you what you're due. Questions or comments about any of this before we get into the material? Okay. What I plan to do, guys, is um, talk about one of the important movements in the Bible. And this movement begins with Christ and ends in Revelation. It is the movement of the final chapter of redemption history. And we'll start 
with Daniel chapter 2. Then we're going to take three passages out of the Gospels. Then we're going to trace the early development of the church through Acts. Then we're going to take a sidebar and look at inner Advent history, the history of the West specifically between Christ's coming, Christ's first coming and his second coming. And then we're going to end with the book of Revelation. So let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we, we are so profoundly grateful that you saved us. Lord, I pray if there are those who don't know you, that they would come to know you before this day is over. I pray, Lord, that you and you alone would speak. These men have come to see you. I pray, Lord, that you would grant their request. Amen. Okay. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Now, gentlemen, that has been true and continues to be true for an awful lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are persecuted in significant ways. It has not been so much true for us in the West. And my sense is that that is changing. And people are scared. Christian and non-Christian alike, people are scared. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. Now, I want to talk about what has happened, why we're, fe we're feeling this fear, what's happened. But I'd suggest to you men that it is God-ordained, and in fact, it is predicted in the Bible. Okay? I do not know, men, if the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. What I do know is that you are best served believing that it is near. Why? Because this planet has two exit doors. One of them is your own death. You don't know when that is. When you're young, you tend to think it's far off. But the truth is, you haven't the faintest idea. And the second exit door is the return of Christ, the so-called rapture. And you don't know when that is either. But I suggest, men, that those two exit doors are designed by God to produce urgency in us. Most, as you look back in church history, most of the devout followers of Jesus believed that he would return in their lifetime. They were wrong, but I suggest that God meant it that way. He wants us thinking that he is near. And gentlemen, we must all appear, this has been, been talked about, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
that each man may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Gentlemen, without urgency, without a sense that I'm going to face that judgment soon, we squander our lives. You can't afford to squander your life. You've got one soul, and that's all that's going to leave the planet is that soul. Now, we're going to talk about prophecy, and prophecy is, is necessarily ambiguous. And all one can, one can do is look at current events and see the degree to which they match up with what you see in the Scripture. Now, men, it's important to remember a, a certain important truth about knowledge. It includes prophetic knowledge, includes knowledge of the Bible, but all knowledge, gentlemen, everything you and I know falls into one of two categories. Everything I know is either one, incomplete, or two, wrong. That's the nature of knowledge. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Gentlemen, we walk by faith, not by sight. And God has woven the world in such a way that our knowledge is either incomplete or wrong. That's just, that's just the rules of the game. You cannot avoid that. And that is why faith is so important. That is the genius of the New Testament. Everybody, as Winston pointed out, walks by faith. Everybody bases his life on things that he cannot prove. I cannot prove the existence of God any more than the atheist can prove that his reason touches down on reality. Questions? What was that reference verse? Oh, 1 Corinthians 8.2. Anything else? Okay. All right, gentlemen, God is the author of history and therefore eschatology. You know what I word mean by that word eschatology? Eschatology means the end times. What ha how, does the, how does the world end? That's what eschatology is about. And I believe, men, that God is driving this eschatology, this end time, through events in the West, and especially in this thing called Christendom. Now, gentlemen, Christianity was born in the midst of a ruthless Roman Empire. And I believe the most visible manifestation that came out of that was this thing that we'll talk about called Christendom. Christendom is not the same thing as Christianity. Christianity, the true church, is Jesus Christ. Jesus and those who belong to him. That is Christianity. But Christendom is a cultural outgrowth of Christianity. Men, cultures are produced by religion. That's why the culture of India is different from that of Pakistan, is different from that of the United States. And Christianity produced a culture in the West. It began in the West. And it, in, in short, 
came about as a result of a synthesis of Greek thought along with certain aspects of the Roman Empire. That produced this culture that we call, or that I'm calling Christendom, it's not my, my term, it's, you can find it anywhere. Um, and that just as God started the church in Rome, in that brutal empire, it is that same, an outgrowth of that, that you must keep your eyes on with respect to the end times, with respect to eschatology. He was in control then, and he's in control now. And times may seem perilous, guys, but be strong and courageous because the outcome is already determined. And it's all directed by God. And in the end, no one's going to be disappointed. You're going to love how it ends. So, again, Christendom is a fusion of the state politically and the culture ideologically. And gentlemen, we're going to talk about this shortly, but there is a progression, a growth in time that this has played out. And we'll talk about that very, very soon. So, let me just come at this from one more angle. Christendom includes the true church, okay? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ in the West, and I'm going to, sp I'm going to speak only about Western Christianity, because I believe prophetically that's, that's where you have to look. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ in the West, you are part of Christendom. But Christendom is much more than the true church. It is all the stuff that has grown out of it, whether it is economic, you know, capitalism, whether it is governmental, democracy slash republic, the arts, the literature, all of that stuff, architecture, is part of Christendom. So it includes the church, the true church, but it is more than the true church. The true church being headed by Jesus and Christendom, a creation of men. Together? I can't tell whether you guys are... You with me? Grab a mic, please. Oh, oh, thank you. I needed that. Okay. Men, I suggest that Christendom was at one time the greatest culture the world has ever seen. Not because it was European, but because of Christ. And let me give you one We'll talk about a little more of the development of that, but let me give you a, uh, a pictorial picture of what I mean by the difference between Christianity and Christendom. This, where's that arrow? I don't know if you guys can see this in the back, but this is a, a picture of St. Peter's Basilica. It's the largest church in the world. 
estimated to seat some 60,000 people. And when you, there are giant doors, and as you walk in those doors, this is what you see. It's opulent, it's lavish, it's beautiful. There's gold everywhere, there's marble everywhere. And men, I am not knocking the Catholic Church. I'm just saying this is a symbol of Christendom. Great wealth came out of Christendom, okay? You and I have benefited by that great wealth. Every one of us has got clothes on his back, food in his stomach, a roof over his head. We are extraordinarily blessed men. Christendom produced massive wealth. Now, this second picture is just to the right. So if you come in these doors and you go right, this is what you see. This is Michelangelo's Pieta. It's the mother of Jesus, Mary, holding his dead body after the crucifixion. Let me suggest to you men, this is a pictorial representation of Christendom. This, a pictorial representation of Christianity. When Jesus calls a man, as Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. To walk with Jesus is to die daily. And this is where it ends. Gentlemen, if you, if you are really following Christ, you are dying daily. Whoever wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Gentlemen, take up your cross daily. The cross is an instrument of death. You are meant to die to who you are so that you can become like Jesus Christ. And as he finishes that thought, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one that will save it. The call of Christ is to this, to die daily. Questions about that? You guys are so easy, I can't believe it. Oh boy, here comes a hardball. Yeah. No, I'll lob one up for you, Jerry. When you say the one on the right, uh, this is where it ends, do you just can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Do you mean just like death in general? Or what's your when you're comparing those two? Mitch, when um <clears throat> When Jesus was in Gethsemane, it's the only instance that we know of where he met the will of his father and didn't want to do it. And he resisted the temptation to walk away from it to the point that he sweat drops of blood. I have met the will of God so many times and didn't want to do it. So, so, so many times. That's, that's where you die daily. When you meet the will of God and don't want to do it, do you choose your path or do you choose His? And when you do, sometimes, not always, but sometimes you'd rather die than have to do that. I'm going to give you an example of 
something that embarrasses me and embarrasses my wife. But I've told it a thousand times, so it's already out there. It doesn't really matter. Um, she's a great communicator. I suck. I mean, I. It's just it's pathetic. So this was probably. Oh gosh, we've been married 50 years. How long has it been? Well over 30 years, maybe 35 or 40 years. No, it couldn't be 40. Yeah, maybe 40. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So we're having a fight. And it starts about 7 in the evening. And now it's 3, 3 a.m. We're in bed. And I'm looking at the wall. And she's right over here talking to the back of my head. Jerry, roll over. We have to talk. Jerry, roll over. We have to talk. And... Literally, I said, God, please, 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 roll a boulder out of heaven and kill me. Isn't that pathetic? It's just pathetic. You know, oh, you're a godly man. Oh, yeah, you're really godly. So... God popped that verse I just quoted to you, Luke 9, 23 and 24. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. I wanted to save my life by not talking to my wife. Losing my life entailed rolling over and talking to her. So I rolled over and talked to her. But then what I realized, Mitch, is that that is the Christian life. Meeting the will of God not wanting to do it, and doing it. And sometimes it feels like that. Any other questions? Who, do you have a question? Yeah, grab a mic, please. just thinking about uh you know the whole idea of christendom and christianity and it seems like what you're saying is uh i guess there's like they've been combined for so long in our minds and some of that some of the uncertainty that believers christians are feeling is there's there's changes going on in christendom and as christians we gotta really have the wisdom and discernment to navigate through that to uh, hey what is what is real part of being a christian and what is the cultural side? Is that, uh, I don't want to get too far ahead, but I was kind of seeing that as far as what you were trying to say. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. And we have to unravel that equation and distinguish between the interests of Christ and the interests of the culture. And I'll just kind of lay my cards on the table. Our call is to become Christ-like by doing those good works of Ephesians 2.10. And those good works, let me suggest to you, have to do with the two eternal things with which we interact. And those two eternal things are the souls of people and the Word of God. And the objective of the game is to get those two things together. 
to get the Word of God into, into the souls of people. That is why we are here. Everything else, everything else gets burned. Don't waste emotional time and energy on what God does not value. He values His Word, and He, value, he values the soul of people. That is our mission. And my brother, if you do it, if that's, if that's the heartbeat of your life, no one is ever going to pat you on the back for it. You'll do it only because you believe it is what Jesus wants. Anything else? Okay, let's talk about how this Christendom thing develops. Now, the Bible traces eschatology largely through the books of Daniel and of Revelation. Daniel gives a big picture. It traces millennia of time. Revelation, on the other hand, is more detailed. And chapters 6 through 19 cover only a seven-year span. However, having said that, Daniel sets the stage for understanding Revelation. Very hard to understand Revelation without understanding Daniel. And I'd suggest, men, that Daniel chapter 2, and go ahead and turn there, because we'll be reading from it very shortly. Daniel chapter 2 gives the first hint of Christendom that I can find in Scripture. There may be others that I've missed, but that's the first one I can find. So, let's go to Daniel chapter 2, and in that, Daniel is interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in that dream, Daniel describes three kingdoms that will dominate the history of Israel from the time of Daniel until Christ. And those three kingdoms are Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Okay, so those are the first three kingdoms that Daniel describes. He then describes a fourth kingdom. That fourth kingdom is Rome. And he describes it in the following way in Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. And let me read that. Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. He says, Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. That is, all the other kingdoms, Rome is going to crush. So that's the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, verse 40. Now, Daniel says then that, that the last kingdom is going to be this Roman Empire and then Christ is going to come. That's somewhat problematic. Reason is, is because there's been lots of kingdoms since Rome. So, how do we, how do we square that circle? Now, let me suggest to you, gentlemen, there's a break in time between Daniel 2.40 and Daniel 41 through 44.
so that Daniel chapter 2, verse 40 <clears throat> gets us up to the time of Jesus' first advent, okay? When he was born in Bethlehem. That's where Daniel chapter 2, verse 40 takes us. But then, it's, then there's this break of time. We'll, we'll come back to that break in time momentarily. But you with me so far? Everybody good? Okay. Now, this, this break in time is what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. Go to Luke 21, verse 24. Luke 21, 24. And this is Jesus speaking. I like to hear all those pages turning. Luke 21, 24. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that Jesus makes this prediction about the, the Gentiles. And this is because God temporarily sets national Israel aside and founds the church, which is predominantly Gentile. Okay? Good, good? Now, the times of the Gentiles, gentlemen, includes the church age. Some people think it's more than the church age. Others say it's just the church age. It's not a controversy that's worth our time. And Jesus, again, specifically announces this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43. Matthew 21, 43, Jesus says the following, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So he's talking to, 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 to Jewish people. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. That people producing the fruit of it is the church, which is predominantly Gentile. Okay? So Jesus is orchestrating everything. Now, Daniel, together with Revelation, says that the church is centered in Rome. How's that come about? Because remember, the stuff that takes place around the time, around the life of Jesus, is all in Israel, all around Jerusalem predominantly. So how, we, how do we get from Jerusalem to Rome? And that's what I want to talk about next. So go to John chapter 12. And this is, I'm, I'm going to read from verse 20 to verse 23. <clears throat> now there were some Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. Okay, the Greeks are Gentile, and they're from the West. Okay, two points to notice. Greeks among those who were going to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to say to him, ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. What a great request. Philip came and told Andrew, 
Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, and get Jesus' response. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, that's a remarkable response. Here's these Greek guys, they want to see you, Jesus. He says, okay, time for me to go to the cross. And the next chapter is the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 17, which is Jesus' final words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. So he immediately begins thinking about the cross as these Gentiles come to him. And men, my, we don't know, we don't, we are not given a reason. But my sense is that it was some arrangement between the Father and the Son that when the Gentiles start seeking you out, Jesus, now it's time. The cross is next. Why? Because we're going to change the program from a predominantly Jewish program to a predominantly Gentile program. Now, the nation, having rejected Christ, now God, Christ now inaugurates the church age and the times of the Gentiles, therefore the cross and the church. So again, men, what we're going to look at now is how God starts to move the center, the religious center of the world from Jerusalem to Rome. See, the truth of God was in Israel. It was in Jerusalem. The program of God was there. They reject Christ. And God says, okay, I'm going to move it. I'm going to move it over to Rome. And it's interesting, men, that Christianity never took deep root in Israel. Never took deep root in the Middle East. But it took very deep root in the West. Okay? All together? Okay. Now, the book of Acts records how this transition, how this movement from Jerusalem <coughs> to Rome took place. Okay? So we're going to talk about Acts now. Acts chapter 15 is arguably the most important chapter in the New Testament from a historian's point of view. Why? Because Acts 15 is the Jerusalem Council. And what in effect happened at the Jerusalem Council is that Christianity became a religion separate and distinct from Judaism. True, it had Jewish roots, but it separated from Judaism. Whereas, had the Jerusalem Council not taken place, Christianity could easily have become another sect of Judaism. But the Jerusalem Council assured that that would not happen. The second most important chapter is Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 <clears throat> of Acts 16. I'll give you a second to get there. Acts 16, 6 through 10. They, that is Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, get this, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, 
They were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is right next to Greece, so it's west. A man from Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So get a lot of what happened. Paul's facing north. He says, I want to go right to Asia. Holy Spirit says, that ain't going to happen. I don't want you there. That's weird, right? I want you in Europe. So he sends him left, sends him west to Europe. Gentlemen, that changed the world. That absolutely changed the world. If Christianity had gone to Asia, the Asians would have been great. If he had gone to Africa, the Africans would have been great. But he came to Europe. And Europe became great, not because they were Europeans, but because of Christ. And it was directed by God. Questions? So when Jesus was, Jesus often told his disciples or the people he spoke with to keep it under wraps. Did that change after he said it will be fulfilled when the Gentiles first approached him or said that we want to see Jesus? But like, I know you're not saying that that's for sure what took place, but like he often said, don't tell anybody about this, the woman at the well or whatever, or keep, keep this healing under What's his last words before he goes to heaven? I want to say go make disciples of all nations. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's time to start yeah. taking names. Proclaim the gospel. Go therefore into all the nations. So you're suggesting just, a significant... Can I, can I back up yeah, one yeah. second? The verse before that is the key verse. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore into all the nations. It's based on the authority of Christ. It's his command for us to go. The under wraps thing, that's over. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. Anything else? Yes, sir. So on that under wraps part, wouldn't it be that he, he wanted things kept under wraps because he still needed to fulfill things before the cross? Bingo. Right. So at that point, he's telling everybody, hey, keep it kind of quiet because he didn't want more attention, which was potentially going to then allow him not to finish his work. Exactly. Right. Okay. Anything else, guys? So, still in Acts, <clears throat> after ministering in Greece and Ephesus, Paul then begins to look to go to Jerusalem. And this is recorded in Acts 19 
through 21. Now, <clears throat> so Paul's desire is to go to Jerusalem after this going west to the Macedonians. But he then wants to go back to Jerusalem. You scratch your head and say, what the heck is that about, Paul? So he goes back to Jerusalem and nobody wants him to go because they know that those in, there are those in Jerusalem who want to kill him. He knows that. And so his, his friends don't want him to go, but he goes. So in Acts 23, Paul is now in Jerusalem and he's on trial. And gentlemen, what he, what he, is, what he has done when he's on trial is he has proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem. So Jesus proclaimed it when he was here and they crucified him. Paul proclaimed it when he was in Jerusalem and they seek to kill him. So this is, it's like this is the last, the last chance for Israel is Paul. And they decide to kill him. So this, we're now in Acts 23 and verse 11. <clears throat> so he's on trial and this is what happens in Acts 23 verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness to Rome also. So Jesus sent him to Jerusalem. He proclaims the gospel. They try to kill him, put him on trial. And Jesus says, now it's time to go to Rome. Okay? So again, Christ directing everything. Every chess move is the will of God. So Christ himself drives Paul to Rome. Now the rest of Acts 23 through 26 record Paul's legal trials that eventuated in him being sent to Rome. Okay? So he's got, he stays in Jerusalem for a while through these trials, and eventually he appeals to Rome, and so the, the, the officials send him to Rome. So that's recorded in Acts 23 through 26. And then Acts 27 and the first half of Acts 28 record the journey to Rome. Those chapter, a chapter and a half is all about how he got to Rome. So then you get to Acts chapter uh, 28 and verse 14. Chapter 28 verse 14 says, Then we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And Acts 28, 30, and 31, the last two verses of the book of Acts, it says this, And he, that is Paul, he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Get a load what God has done. He can't preach it in Jerusalem because they'll kill him. So he sends him to Rome and he preaches it unhindered for two years. Orchestrated of God. Now at the end of Acts, and that's where it ends, Paul is in Rome where he was martyred probably under the, the emperorship of, of Nero around 64 AD or so. Tradition has it that Peter was also martyred in Rome about the same time. The point is, gentlemen, the church is now 
established in Rome. And the program of God has moved from Jerusalem to Rome and the West. That's the takeaway. We all together on that? Okay. And men, this is all the work of God and not people. And so now we go back to Daniel. God has moved the spiritual center of the world from Jerusalem to Rome. And Daniel says, that's the last kingdom before Jesus returns. Okay? Got it? Men, let me suggest to you that eschatological history, that is the history of the end times, is directed from Rome and the West. And as far as I can tell, no other region of the world is eschatologically important. Now, you may say to me, well, what about, what about Israel? And you, you have a point. But as best I can tell, all of the prophecies about Israel have been fulfilled. And you say, well, what about the building of the temple? And the temple may, in fact, be built before the tribulation and the return of the Lord. It has to be built before the return of the Lord for sure. And it may well be built before the tribulation. On the other hand, it could be built during the tribulation. Supposedly, they've got, they've got all the parts and ready to go so they can get the thing up pretty quickly. So if the temple gets built, well and good, but it doesn't have to happen as best I can tell. So eschatologically, eschatologically, the place to look is in the West. And that which was produced by Rome. So Christianity takes place in the West. And now let's go back to Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> So let me just review with you chapter Daniel 2, verse 40. There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes, shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. That's ancient Rome, okay? That's ancient Rome, the time when Jesus came. Good on that? Okay, now I, I suggested to you that there's a break of time between verse 40 and verse 41. So verse 40 is ancient Rome. 41 is, is a new thing. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So there's this metamorphosis from the, ste the, the, the steel legs to the feet and toes that are partly steel, I mean, partly iron, and partly pottery or clay. And I suggest to you, men, that that transition is a reconstituted 
Roman Empire. Not the same one, but it comes out of the geographical and possibly cultural roots of ancient Rome. So what Daniel, the, the, the legs giving way to those feet and toes, I'm going to suggest to you, are the Dark Ages. That's the beginning of that. And Rome becomes reconstituted much later. Now, again, men, there is no earthly kingdom mentioned prophetically except Rome. Nothing else to look at but Rome and the West. And interestingly, not surprisingly, but interestingly, what Daniel predicted actually happened. Christ came at the height of the Roman Empire, but a few centuries after that, Rome fell. But it came back in a reconstituted conglomerate of kingdoms, and those individual kingdoms became nations. This happened in the Middle Ages, and it came to be what we know as modern Europe and, the Christen and Christendom. I want to read a passage out of, <clears throat> some of you may or may not be familiar with G.K. Chesterton. If you're not, you should be. He um, wrote a little book called Orthodoxy. And this is from his chapter called Authority and the Adventure. Let me read what he says. He, he's addressing the question that we're talking about. And he is talking about the idea that Christianity belongs to the Dark Ages. You know, you've, you've heard that. It's like, you know, we're a bunch of Neanderthals and we, just, we live in the Dark Ages. So he addresses that. He said, here I did not satisfy myself with reading modern generalizations. I read a little history. And in history, I found that Christianity so far from belonging to the Dark Ages was the one path across the Dark Ages that was not dark. I found that, uh, I'm sorry, it was a shining bridge connecting two shining civilizations. If anyone says that the faith arose in ignorance and savagery, the answer is simple. It didn't. It arose in the Mediterranean civilization in the full summer of the Roman Empire. The world was swarming with skeptics, and pantheism was as plain as the sun when Constantine nailed the cross to the mast. It is perfectly true that afterwards the ship sank, the Dark Ages, the ship sank, but it's far more extraordinary that the ship came up again, repainted and glittering, <clears throat> with the cross still at the top. This is the amazing thing the religion did. It turned a sunken ship into a submarine. The ark lived under the load of waters after being buried under the debris of dynasties and clans. We arose and remembered Rome. If our faith had been a mere fad of the fading empire, fad would have followed fad in the twilight. And if the civilization ever reemerged, and many such have never reemerged, it would have been under some new barbaric flag. But the Christian church was the last life of the old society and was also the first life of the new. She took the people who were forgetting how to make an arch and taught them to invent the Gothic arch. In a word, the most absurd thing that could be said of the church is the thing we've all heard of it. How can we say the church wishes to bring us back into the Dark Ages? The church was the only thing that ever brought us out of them. That's the reconstitution 
of Rome that he's describing. Okay? And you and I are products of that reconstitution. Whether you know it or not, whether you've thought about it or not, you and I are all products of that. Now, I think I'm out of time, but let me get us to get us to the end real quickly. Oh, I do? Oh, I'm sorry. Did you have a question, Jonathan? Oh, I thought you were telling me I had five minutes. <laughs> Can you, or do you have any thoughts on where it says that the iron and the pottery clay will join together through the seed of men, but then it says they won't adhere to one another. Do you have any thoughts on what that's referring to? I, I think, Jonathan, it refers to you know, intermarriage of different people's groups, but nonetheless, the, the nations remain the same. So, so, so with the, the Roman Empire, we, we just say that they were in the, in the original constitution was genetically pure, more pure, and now we're... I think he's saying that it was a, <clears throat> it was a unified empire ruled with an iron hand. And the whole idea of, of diversity would not have been accepted there. But now it is, or now it's going to, that's what it's going to look like. Yeah. In the reconstitution. I, I think. Okay. So now we're at Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. So we've talked about the feet and the toes. Remember, there's 10 toes, right? Okay, so this is what Daniel 2, 44 says. In the days of those kings, let me suggest to you that those kings are the ten toes. Revelation refers to the same thing in Revelation 17, 12. Ten kings. In the days of those kings, so here we are in this reconstituted Roman Empire, in the days of those kings, when these ten kings come together, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. That's the kingdom of Christ coming in the time of these ten toes, these ten kings. And I'd suggest to you men that those ten kings all come out of Christendom. Can you explain that? Um, explain... Because they come out of that Rome, that conglomerate at Rome. Again, there's one, one last empire, Rome. And Rome goes through a metamorphosis from this solid, monolithic iron to this mixture of pottery and clay. It was not that way when Rome existed as an empire. It became that way after the Middle Ages and began to form during the Middle Ages. And so it was the formation of modern Europe. Does it make sense to you? Anything else? I, I sort of hesitate to start this, but I think I will anyway. What do I have? Gentlemen, as we talked about, 
what I'm going to switch to now is the inter-advent history of the West. That is, how did we, we, we are Westerners. How did we become Westerners? That's what this is about. Okay? So let me suggest to you that everybody walks by faith and that that faith can be based on, and I'm using the word revelation in a very narrow sense in this case, because in the West, this revelation was the Bible. Okay? And in the West, this, the other authority was that of human reason. Okay, so two sources of knowledge, two grounding in knowledge. One grounded in the Bible, two grounded in human reason. Okay? So on the revelation side of the equation, begins with revelation, uh, Redemption history really begins in earnest with Abraham. Moses and the law follow. King David. Israel goes into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then <clears throat> the final book of the Bible, Malachi, is written. So this is the, the Jewish side of our heritage. And this is the Old Testament. Right? So that's that's part of what made us. And then Jesus comes. This is guys who do calculations say that he died in 33 AD. In fact, I think they say April 3rd or 4th. I'm seriously, guys have taken the calculations from the 70 weeks of Daniel uh, and come to that conclusion. And they seem to be. They seem to be like, the, I think they might be on target. At any rate, oh, okay, this is, the, this is something that really changed the world. So Christ comes, and roughly 300 years later, a Roman empire, a, a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine comes into power. And lo and behold, Constantine becomes a Christian. And he issues what's called the Edict of Milan. Prior to the Edict of Milan, it was illegal to be a Christian, and you could be hunted or killed for that. The Edict of Milan made Christianity an accepted religion within the Roman Empire. And so just, just think about what happened to these guys. There's 10 Roman persecutions of Christians that last from 64 AD to 310, three, just three years before the Edict of Milan. So these Christians go from being hunted and killed to be invited into the emperor's court and their opinions solicited. That's a marvelous, unbelievable transformation. And so a guy by the name of Augustine comes around uh, oh, a few decades after that, and he writes a book called The City of God, in which he theologizes this change. And Augustine is one of the most important figures of this, of this time. Now we're going to talk about some of the things that come out of this, but I think, Joe, to keep us on time, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to go over it. Two minutes? All right. Chris is so generous. I know you guys know that. All right. 
So on this side, from human reason, something really important happens. And gentlemen, it's important to note, look at these, these dates. This is happening between the end of the Old Testament and the time of Christ. Okay? So you have three philosophers, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And again, they're, they're basing their beliefs on human reason. They've grounded knowledge in human reason. And the reason I put Alexander up here is because Alexander was a student of Aristotle. He'd learned that philosophy. And as, when Alexander the Great, this guy, when he was conquering the world, he took the Greek ideas and the Greek culture with him. Okay? So he spread this Greek thinking primarily to the east, but somewhat to the, to the west as well. Oh, I forgot about Augustine. Okay, I, had, I forgot I had him over here. Okay, let's go back. So, in this time period between, blah, Jerry, don't do that, between Christ and Augustine, the church began to take the ideas of the Greeks, particularly Plato, and to synthesize them with Christianity. So it was, a, it was a synthesis of primarily Platonic thinking with Christianity. The second thing that happened in this time period is that the interests of the state, that is Rome, and the interests of the church also became intertwined. And the church adopted some of the um, governmental hierarchy. But more importantly, what they did was it was a wedding of a group that has a temporal focus and another group that is supposed to have an eternal focus. The state's interests are temporal. The interests of the church are supposed to be eternal but they became wedded right about this time. And when the church then did a third thing, which is to take on the governmental hierarchy of the, of the Romans, one of the distinctions that got made was a distinction between clergy on the one hand and laity on the other. Gentlemen, that is an Old Testament concept. In the New Testament, all believers are priests. And that clergy-laity distinction did as much damage to the church as anything I can think of because it made us a passive laity. See, we're supposed to sit there and absorb and then go out and live your life. And your life, it's, it's your business. So we became passive. It was a great danger to us. So that's church and state intertwining, adoption of the, gov the governmental hierarchy, and the church-laity distinction. And then finally, the integration of Greek thought with the church. 
we're going to talk about how those things now evolve and have produced what we have now. So that's a good place to leave it off.